This is Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, and each episode, I'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international industry leaders who will offer us insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. Welcome back to another edition of Business Impact as we sail into the middle of February, heading towards and past the middle section of the month. Isn't it fantastic to see things like daffodils coming up from the ground? It does happen whether you want them to or not, and it's just a great sign of the vibrancy and the longer days that we're getting at the moment. I was talking to a group of students the other day, and I was asking them, what is the kind of key pivotal issue in their lives at this moment in time? And normally you get covid and all the rest of that but actually i was amazed to see people who are um you know yet to sit into the working life are talking about inflation and talking about the cost of living because it hits it has that such broad base to it that it affects you whatever stage you are in life whether you're retired working or in a, a university or third level institution inflation is everything at the moment even though the signs are that it's slightly moderating on the back of a, a series of interest rate increases from around the world so our guest today is going to be tapping into that general sort of sense of rising prices, commodities, food, because it's something we've talked a little bit tangentially here on the podcast, but we're going to hit it right between the eyes, right centrally, and get into what it's all about, why are prices behaving the way they are, who's to blame, if that's the right word, what economic force is behind it, is it lack of supply, is it over demand, what are the particular aspects that are pushing inflation around the world to the level we haven't really seen since the 1970s. And some people have almost forgotten what the word inflation meant. Some people literally have had to look it up in the last six months to understand the full socio-political and economic implications of it all. So our guest is Professor Don Breeden here from the UCD Business School, who happens to be a well-traveled researcher in the whole area of inflation particularly commodity prices. And also he has a big interest in more general issues in relation to globalisation and he holds a position in that regard here in the business school as well. His full title is Professor of Finance here at UCD. He was for a good few years head of the Banking and Finance Unit. He has a PhD from the University of Newcastle and spent many years in his earlier career at Galway. And he also worked at the Central Bank in their research department. So he is someone who is mixed with a lot of economists, uh, macro and micro, and people doing all sorts of different types of economic research. He's also involved in the whole world of internationalization here at the UCD Business School. And we'll talk to him a little bit about that in a few minutes. He's a vice president in that area. First of all, you're very welcome along, Don. Hi, Emmett. Uh, great to be on the show. Great great to have you along. As I said, we've been talking about um, these two big issues of prices and inflation and then the greater, bigger process of globalisation for really since the inception of the podcast. And it kind of comes in and out, particularly inflation, but we've never really tackled it head on and looked at the roots of it. And thankfully, you've been doing research in this area, along with some of your colleagues over recent years at the business school. So we thought, why not bring in the person who knows where these things are coming from? What are the trends? What are the factors that drive prices up? And as, as I said earlier, is somebody or a phenomenon or a group of people to blame for the rise or surge in food prices, particularly in the area of commodities, food products that are traded, openly traded and that we can track? So first of all, welcome along. Tell me a little bit about yourself. You are an economist and you've been doing research in the area for quite a while, starting out in the central bank after you got your academic qualifications. What particular part of 
economics is what personally interests you, Don? Really, any aspect of the the interaction between finance and economics would interest me in terms of both teaching and research. In the last number of years, I've spent a lot of time looking at a particular topic, uh, the financialization that has occurred globally, really. And this is the flow of funds into commodities. Um, and and this, is, this has had quite a significant impact. So really, in terms of research and teaching interests, my area is very much looking at innovations um, that might occur in the area of finance and the implications of those innovations uh, on the broader economy. So whereas those innovations may well be very, very positive in the world of finance and the operation of financial markets, um, I'm particularly interested in the broader the, the economy-wide implications of those innovations. So, so one innovation for investors is this issue around financialization. So this expands quite dramatically the um, opportunities that are available for investors. And so what we've seen over the last approximately 20 years is a flow of investment funds into non-traditional assets. So a flow of funds, for example, into commodities. And for investors, that's positive because it opens up the possibilities, the opportunities for investors. And what I'm particularly interested then is looking at the broader, the wider economic implications of this process. So really for me, I'm interested in interactions, interactions between finance and economics. Okay, let me just hold you there because you, you've got a few uh, terms we want to unpack. I suppose this term financialization won't be familiar to everyone who listens to the podcast, but it will be familiar to some. Is My understanding of it in broad terms is this is where you know trading on certain things happens or where there's a financial element to an activity that previously might have been so in other words you know centuries ago somebody needed to get food and they bought it off somebody else and it was just to consume it was essentially just their own good that they consumed financialization brings into it's the investment of flows of money into this activity that that essentially somebody in this system or somebody in the transaction is looking to make an actual gain or, or, or uh, you know, draw some kind of benefit from the transaction. Would that be a fair way to, to describe what financialization is? Yeah, for sure, Emmett. So if you think traditional investments in stocks and bonds, um, and, and that has, that, you know, is our, is our traditional um, um, asset markets that we can, we can think of quite clearly when we think of investor behavior. And what we've seen over the last approximately 20 years is an expansion of the opportunities that are available out there. So what we've seen is a flow of funds into, for example, commodities. So these um, investors then, as you say, are looking for uh, a return. And that return could be a short-term or a long-term return, but it is a financial return on their investments. And they're looking at returns on non-standard or alternatives to, for example, stocks and bonds. So one area where we've seen 
quite a considerable flow of investor funds is into the area of commodities. So, um, for example, oil, gas, food-related commodities, so corn, wheat, coffee. Um, so what, what we've seen is quite a considerable flow of investment activities in these, what you might consider non-standard investment areas, like, for example, commodities. Sure. And um, I suppose, like a lot of academic research, sometimes it goes out there and it gets into the right places, the right journals, etc., and, you know, it's, it's, it's the first impact maybe is not appreciated. And then suddenly two or three years, something blows up or something changes or there's an economic um, movement in the, in the economy that suddenly makes it more relevant. So I suppose in your case, you probably found it almost ironic that the tail end of last year, or sorry, the middle of last year in particular, there was suddenly a surge in inflation prices all over the main Western economies, at least. And suddenly I'd say, <laughs> I'd say we're looking at your work and saying, hang on a second here this is going to get a fresh uh, dose of energy behind it. Was that your reaction when you saw some of these key kind of commodities and food groups suddenly tracking up in the stores and on international markets? Did you suddenly say, my moment has arrived? Well, uh, in, in fact, Emmett, it, it actually goes back to about maybe 2011, 2012. Um, I remember reading a, 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 an article in Time magazine and the headline on the article was betting on hunger. Is financial speculation to blame for high food prices? And it, it really got me thinking in terms of the implication of this financialization process. And there, there's quite a, quite a large volume of material out there that considers the financialization process as quite significant in terms of the role and the effect of uh, speculation in commodities. What we see now at the moment is that 21st century has been dominated by very high food prices. And there's quite a considerable consensus out there that these high prices, you, were, you referred to inflation earlier in, in, in our chat, but there's a, quite a considerable consensus out there that these high prices have been driven, have been dominated by this issue around financialization. And to the fore here then is the role of financial speculation. And so th this was always an issue, but it, it very much came to the fore in this very well-cited article in Time magazine, Betting on Hunger. Yes, but what I, what I suppose what I'm referring to is we're, we're very greatly insulated a lot in places like Ireland, at least. We only see, you know, before the current inflation crisis where we're used to inflation and the low single figures. Now, obviously, it's very different for people in emerging markets who often are subject to these wild swings in what they have to pay. So in that sense, your, your research is suddenly, you know, it, it gathers new steam and new momentum because everyone is asking the question. And, and Cantor, the market research company, had some interesting figures out the other day about what might lie ahead for us in the next six months of this year in terms of food prices. So I suppose in that sense, we're all casting around to find the, the agent or the phenomenon that causes these prices to move around so widely. And, and that's, I suppose, where your research steps into the, into the room and, and lights up the sky a little bit for us, because you've been looking at manipulators and speculators and other such exotic characters. Um, so could, could you take us through a little bit about, um, you know, just 
why we need to know the answers to this or, or what, what might be the, the kind of utility of the research in the sense that, like, what would it tell us if we can find out the answer to that particular question? Sure. I, I suppose the, the, the good place to start here is to really try and answer the question whether whether speculation is the is the driving force behind these very high prices in relation to global food. Um, what we've tried to do is uh, draw on quite a lot of work that's been completed using behavioral models. And so what we try and do is try and separate what we consider to be the key drivers of commodity food prices. So in effect, you would have one component which might represent your long-term, your fundamental variables. Think about Econ 101, supply and demand. Uh, That would be one element, uh, one key element in terms of drivers of commodity food prices. And that would be the traditional view, the traditional view that, well, food prices are driven by supply and demand. The big issue, of course, is this impact of financialization. And so what's the role then of of speculators? So what we do is we use a behavioral model to identify both speculators and manipulators. And our speculator behaves perfectly consistent with those fundamental variables. But rather than having a a long-term view, uh, they have a a short-term view. So they're they're not interested in a long-term investment. They're interested in a short-term return, Um, but they're fully rational. And we also then look at manipulators. And manipulators then are the complete reverse. The manipulators are irrational, they tend to overreact to new information and they push prices away from their fundamental value. So we have a behavioral model that we've uh, developed. Uh, We're looking at those three constituent parts, um, the long-term, those fundamental variables, the short-term, which is rational, those speculators, and then the short-term, which is completely irrational, the manipulators. Why it's important, Emmett, really, is because regulators, their role is to protect consumers, to protect investors. And unless we can have a clear understanding as to the drivers of food prices, it's going to be very difficult to put suitable and appropriate policy in place to protect consumers and to protect investors. So I think our work is obviously a a piece of academic research, but it has quite significant policy and regulatory implications in relation to food price movements globally. Now, obviously, um, for for all sorts of reasons, you, you don't name these manipulators, the companies or the funds beneath them. Um, but can you give us any sense of who they might be? Or are they, you know, hedge funds that invest in food uh, commodities? Are they um, mutual funds? Are they just individuals? Can, can you give us any sense of um, who they are? And then what was the data set that you were you were looking for in, in that particular area? Sure. So in terms of the, the, the fundamentals, the fundamentals you might consider to be uh, firms that are Uh, exposed to movements in prices. So they're looking to hedge their exposure. 
Um, so that might be a way of thinking about the, the, the fundamentals in our behavioral model. Speculators in our behavioral model, well, they might be financial investors that are on the other side of any hedge strategy. So they would be certainly uh, examples of short-term investors that um, are providing the funds for the fundamental investors, for the hedgers, um, but they have they very much have a short-term perspective. Um, and so they may well be um, uh, examples of um, hedge fund managers that would behave in that manner. And then thirdly, you've got manipulators. And the key thing about the manipulators here is that they behave in an irrational manner. They're considered investors that may well follow a herd approach. Uh, they tend to overreact to information. So, for example, in the food area, they might overreact to, let's say, poor than expected crop yields. Um, the, the key thing here is that um, the, the parties involved are likely to uh, react to new information. And the key distinction here for us in terms of speculators versus manipulators is that speculators, they're going to react in a perfectly rational manner, whereas the manipulators, they're going to react in an irrational manner. And by irrational, what we mean here is that they're pushing prices away from those fundamental values, those values that are very much uh, determined by supply and demand factors. Okay, well, let, let's boil down the research even further. And I know this is a, an awkward thing to do because it is, it's it's longer and it's more drawn out and you, you've got a lot of very um, strong data sets that you use to make your point. So excuse me for being reductive here, but that's just the nature of the podcast format. Um, do, do you find overall that these manipulators, their presence means that our food prices, our global food prices are essentially higher than they would otherwise be if that particular group wasn't involved. Can you go that far in your research or do you have any sense of it just even from the piece you've done of what the answer to that might be? Okay, so great question, Emmett. What we try to do here is try to determine, is it the case that manipulators are driving these prices? So what we did was we, we took 2002 as our base year. This is often viewed as the start of this financialization process. And that, that that's the case for drawing on a, a number of uh, studies that have been developed. So what we find is that we reject any indications of a wave of manipulation since 2002. So what I mean by a wave of manipulation, we looked at a number of different food commodities. And what we find is that there is evidence of an increase in manipulation post 2002, but it's very, very small. What we find is that the vast majority of the drivers in terms of commodity prices are those fundamental variables. Manipulation, it's there, it's present, but its role is very, very small. And its role is consistently small. So what we can say is that post-2002, we don't see a dramatic 
change in behavior. We don't see a structural change where all of a sudden there's a very large um, component of prices being driven by manipulation. What we find is consistently throughout our sample, and we have a sample of about 30 years, but consistently throughout our sample, we're finding that the vast majority of the drivers in terms of commodity prices are fundamentals. For sure, manipulation is important, uh, but it's small. It's very, very small compared to the fundamentals. Yeah, and I mean, sometimes research produces answers that people maybe don't want or, or would prefer another answer, which is uh, unfortunate for them. But yeah, I, I can imagine that just in terms of popular reaction, whatever about academic reaction, a finding that actually said manipulation is a significant part of the trends in global food prices would be, you know, probably more compelling externally, but that's not what the research you've done shows. Were you surprised at what you, the kind of the, the, the result? Or, or I know obviously you go into every piece of academic research trying to strip out any bias you might have ahead of time, but were you surprised at the outcome of it? Did, did it sort of uh, shock you a little bit that it came out that way or was that kind of uh, what you had an inkling before you started the actual process? Well, I, I think it, it depends on who you talk to as well, Emmett. You know, it, it, on, on one side, uh, you might have uh, a consensus view that, well, commodity prices, they're all driven by uh, supply and demand. And we don't find that. We don't find that supply and demand is the, is the, is the full story. And on the other side, uh, you'd have quite a a number of, of uh, sources of information where the consensus would be that manipulation is the key driver. So where we're coming down is somewhere in the middle where we're saying that fundamentals, yes, they play quite a significant role and they play the dominant role, but on their own, it's not the full story. Uh, what we find is that that manipulation, it is important. There hasn't been a significant change in the role of manipulation but it is present and it does have an impact on food prices, but its role is small. So I think where we're, where we're coming down is somewhere in the middle, really, uh, in terms of using data to explain the behavior of commodity food prices. Um, ju just, just to note, um, in terms of data, the data that we're using is a relatively high frequency uh, derivative price data, futures price data. Um, but just to note, as in most academic studies, um, you, you, you tend to look at the sensitivity of your results. Um, so in addition to looking at prices, we've also examined data from the um, Commodities Futures Trading Commission. And this is a, a, a regulator based in the US and what they do is they produce reports of commodity trader activity. So it's not prices, it's an indication of traders' activity in the area of commodities. And um, what we find is using that data, so it's very, very different data to the price data and our behavioral model, but using that data, we get very consistent results. Um, so that's quite comforting for us. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's nice to have that cross-purpose and cross-checking mechanism built into it. It gives you that comfort, as you say. I suppose we just, as human beings, we, we do like the idea that there's some you know, body of people or some group or, or some character or actor out there that is sort of skewing things beyond just the ordinary rules or, or supply of demand um, kind of convention. So I suppose in that sense, you know, the research could be comforting if, if it suddenly told us, yes, it's this group here, it's all their fault. Uh, that can sometimes be appealing to us just on, on a human level. But as you say, you've got to go with the, the integrity of the data and that comes across strongly in the research. Obviously, we're into 2023. There's been a bit of a moderation in prices. Would you like to see fresh data sets in this area? And is it possible that might change the findings? Or would you be fairly confident what you found would hold up even against, you know, literally kind of 2023 figures or, or late 2022? Like, so how much upgrading of the, of the findings do you think would be possible if you did it on absolutely a 100% fresh new set of data, or do you think, well, not really, I don't think it would massively change? Yeah, I, I think it's it's um, it's the nature of empirical research. You're obviously subject to the, the sample of data that you used. Um, so our data uh, in, in this particular study covered the period from 1990 to 2017. Um, and uh, we're, we're, we're currently in the process of um, updating uh, our results, um, we're, we're we're looking at uh, a broader group of commodities, and we're also particularly interested in uh, developing our behavioural model to incorporate. So, for example, the impact of of uh, the current Ukraine crisis, so the impact of conflict in in relation to the behaviour of speculators versus manipulators so so that's that's work in progress but um as always we're we're very much subject to uh the sample that we've we've examined uh, but we're currently in the in the uh, in the middle of of uh, updating our results and, and building up to up to the current uh, period yeah, I suppose prices are, are like death and taxes are always with us from an academic research point of view, which is good for you, uh, Don, uh, to keep keep you going. Don, as I said, is a professor of finance here at the UCD um, Business School. He's also holds, though, a second hat on his head, which is he's the vice president for internationalization and global engagement. Now, time is a little bit against us when I want to ask about this fascinating area, Don, but you were very much involved post-COVID and also during COVID on engaging the international student body on UCD's behalf. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that work and what it's like <laughs> in that area? Has it been a choppy few years because of the pandemic and so on? Well, it, it's it's certainly been uh, extremely interesting. I think we can draw very much on on our uh, recent re research conversation, Emmett, um, in that the the the, the challenges that you know, we've we've been discussing in terms of inflation, in terms of uh, global food price increases, um, in terms of uh, shortages, in terms of um, uh, even in terms of the implications around COVID. Um, what I think is is significant in terms of uh, third level education is that th these these challenges are very much global challenges, and um, so. A lot of our focus here in the UCD College of Business is uh, developing a, um, a business education approach that considers both those global challenges and and challenges that that 
are also local challenges. So 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 we're we're very much in the business of of considering both global challenges and local challenges in terms of business education. So certainly uh, learnings from from the COVID period are quite significant. Yes, and and I mean it's 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 your challenge, I suppose, to provide education globally. That's what UCD and other universities do now. They don't just recruit, whereas they might have done back in the sixties and seventies from their local student body. So that puts all sorts of pressure because you're in the in the whole league tables world and so on. And you know, international students are right, rightfully demanding of the standards that they receive. They they will compare and contrast and evaluate institutions against each other. So it's a, it's a tough, hard nosed world. That whole area of global engagement, isn't it? For sure. But I, I think in terms of uh, business education, I think the, the global mindset is critical. You know, it's critical in terms of informing our research activities, uh, informing curriculum, um, our student recruitment, our faculty recruitment, um, our engagement with other universities. That global mindset is 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 critical. And so when I think about business education in the 21st century, I'm thinking about an education that's very much research-led and certainly has a practical business focus. But it's very much around taking that global mindset and delivering high-quality research and teaching, developing and advancing our our learners, so whether they be undergraduates or uh, executives studying with us here in SED, but learner advancement is obviously critical. Um, obviously, we play quite a considerable role in improving organizations. And, and all of that is, is, is couched within the, the key cornerstone of, of uh, academic freedom. So that, that global mindset is, is, is critical. Okay, well, listen, well, well done on, on putting some of the things you've been doing recently in recent years. And I know a lot of what you, your work has gone into the overall strategy for the, the UCD Business School. So there's a very big weighty component of that in the overall strategy, because as you say, UCD wants to build on some of that work that's already been doing and take it up to the next level. So you'll have a very interesting period ahead with that job. Also, as you said earlier, you've got your hands full with the whole area of commodity prices with wars and all sorts of geopolitical tensions breaking out. Uh, it's it's an interesting time, if a somewhat dangerous time. Thank you for coming on. Um, you're a very interesting guest, and you're also a fellow Tottenham Hotspur fan, so you're always welcome to come on this podcast. Professor Don Breeden, thank you very much. Thanks, Emma. Pleasure. Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode of the UCD Business Impact Podcast, please subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We cover a broad range of topics with insights from business leaders around the world, so there's sure to be something there for everyone. I'd like to thank our production team of Beth Gormley and Mike Liffey. They work tirelessly in the background, sourcing interviewees, editing, promoting episodes, and everything in between. I've been your host, Emmett Oliver, and we hope you can join us next time on UCD Business Impact. Music